0: Well, good morning, church family. How are we doing today? Good, good. There's a strong good morning in the left corner over here. Well done. I hope you all had a wonderful time with loved ones this last week, eating turkey to the point of regret. And uh, no, just kidding. You know, I... My family, we're big on holidays and on traditions, and uh, we have some pretty sentimental traditions that even our little home and our family unit has begun doing every year, and they're very special to me. You know, every year, Thanksgiving on Thursday, uh, we get together with the extended family, and we eat what is my favorite meal out of the entire year. Um, And then, because as many of you know, I'm one of those God-awful Cowboys fans, I got to watch the Cowboys. And of course, this year they did not do anything to help my ability to be grateful. Um, and so still processing some of that and walking some of that out. Uh, but you know, it, it is what it is. And then for us, after Thursday is gone, Friday comes and our family is getting the tubs out of the basement. To break out the decorations and the lights and all the twinkly, sparkly things. and our girls get so excited, they, the love, we, we turn on the songs and we get the atmosphere going. And uh, I, I just you know Scripture teaches us that we have to speak the truth and love. And I just want to say, if you're one of those people, if you're those families that start doing Christmas stuff before Thanksgiving, you need to repent. And <laughs> this is crimes against God, I'm kidding. I'm joking, no, no, absolutely honestly, my girls were asking a few weeks before Thanksgiving to start listening to Christmas music in the van, and I 'm like, "Yeah, sure, And uh, honestly, I think the people who do that there 's something I love about these people it, because in a sense, they kind of embody what advent is about in in so much as having this eager excitement and hope for what is to come. That you begin preparing for it. That's really what Advent is about. These, These Israelites, the people of God, had been eagerly anticipating, hoping, longing for something that had been promised to them thousands of years ago. Again, multiple different times, multiple different ways that they began preparing for it, eagerly, excitedly longing for it. And at the first coming of Christ... Jesus, the king of the universe, arrives in the humble manger from that humble family in the humble city of Bethlehem. You know, uh, there's a couple of books in the Bible. I think Matthew and Luke are probably the two most popular places to go to build the Christmas story, if you will. And if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you're starting to get ready to read the Christmas story from Matthew's account, you see that the book of Matthew opens with this huge list of genealogies from Abraham to Jesus. And we might wonder, well, why is this necessary as part of the story? Like. Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob and so on all the way to Jesus. Why is that so important? And let me just say this, any of you families in the church who might be expecting you've got a little one on the way, a bun in the oven, so to speak, I'd encourage you to explore the biblical genealogies. Some really interesting names in there. In fact, if you haven't noticed yet, Pastor Gino's wife on stage, she's got a little baby bump. Uh Uh-huh. It is that. And, uh, Pastor Gino and Andrea, I don't think they might be out in the commons. I don't see them in here right now. But a few suggestions I'd like to throw out there. Uh, Jeconiah, Zerubbabel, and Aminadab. Um, I personally am casting my vote for Zerubbabel Miller. That'd be awesome. Maybe a little bit of Aminadab Miller. You could be like, you know, give me some dab, Aminadab. Nope, that's terrible. Okay. Wow. Thank you for humoring me because that was dad joke all day long. There's important things to talk about today, right? You down? All right. Hey, we'll look through all those genealogies later. Cool. Yeah, right. (laughs) Not only do we wonder why Matthew opens with those genealogies, but all throughout the Old Testament, there are lists of all the begats of these genealogies. Why does that matter? Why was it so important to be put in Scripture over and over Well, it's important because of hope. Hope in what? Well, hope in God, really. Hope in his word. Hope in his promises. Hope ultimately in his salvation. Today, as we're talking about the advent of hope, I want to discuss really what is hope. And I've heard it once said that someone, uh, I once heard someone say that hope is the feeling of anticipating a future that is better than the present. I'll say that one more time, that hope is the feeling of anticipating a future that is better than the present. You know, I personally, as I've already gone there as one of those Cowboys fans, I, I, every year it's known how Cowboys fans do, right? They're the people who are like, well, this is our year. Like, every year even though the last 25 years have proven this ain't our year and there's still jerry jones in the office so i don't know what we're going to do with the fact that we have this perpetual hope even after disappointment every year and i'm not i know i'm not alone in that as a cowboys fans uh, as a cowboys fan because i know packers have become the best in the league at losing the nfc championship (laughs) it's like every year What things are true? Death, taxes, and the Packers losing in the NFC Championship. (laughs) I'm making lots of friends this morning. But that feeling seasonally, every single year, spring training starts happening, and there's OTAs, and then preseason comes, and this hope starts building of, could this possibly be our team's year? And you go through the season, the ups and downs, and like me on Thanksgiving, even still on Thanksgiving with this terrible as the Cowboys did, I'm going, man, if they would have just had Amari Cooper and CeeDee Lamb and Randy Gregory and Demarcus Lawrence, that game wouldn't have even been close. And so even after that terrible, ugly game, I'm still sitting here allowing this hope to start to grow for even this year, which is dangerous if you're a Cowboys fan, because they keep on letting you down. How hard is it when you consider imagining a future better than right now? It's not very hard, right? Is that difficult to imagine a future that's better than where we are right now? Turn on the news, get on Facebook, Twitter, Insta, whatever. It's not hard to imagine something that could be better, to imagine a world better than what we have, to imagine things better than what we have even all experienced in our own lives, not on a global global scale, but even in our own lives, to imagine things that could be better. And over the next few weeks of, or the next four weeks of this Advent season, it's a time where we look back at the first coming of Christ, the advent of Christ, meaning arrival, the advent of the Messiah, because there was thousands of years generation after generation after generation of hoping for fulfillment of the first promise that was later echoed and expanded by so many Old Testament prophets. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3 as we're beginning Advent. You might have thought we'll go to Matthew or Luke. Well, let's go all the way back. Genesis chapter 3 is a chapter I tend to go to a lot because It hits a lot of things that we deal with. We know Genesis, if you're familiar with the story at all, God creates everything that we know. Everything that he made is good and perfect and flawless. No sin, no pain, no suffering, no sickness, none of that. Everything God has made is good. And he steps back and says, it is good. He makes man and woman and puts them in the garden. And he looks at them and says, they are good. And then he tells them one thing. He says, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For the day you do, you will die. And we all know what happened. The serpent enters in to deceive and lies to Eve. I wasn't trying to rhyme this morning. He lies to her and says, hey, you should try this fruit. It's really good. She says, well, wait, God told us we can't eat from that tree. He said the day that we do, we'll die. He says, no, 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 no. Listen, he doesn't want you to eat from that tree because he knows that the day you do, you will be like him, knowing both good and evil. She goes, oh, well, okay. It does look good, and I bet it tastes good. So she took and ate, and her eyes were opened, and she gave to her husband who was with her. He took and ate, his eyes were opened, and they sinned, rebelled, disobeyed, the God of all creation. That's when sin entered the world. And to a holy God who is only good and only perfect and just and righteous, he must punish sin. And so he places a curse on the earth, a curse on the serpent, a curse on man and woman, that women now today experience the labor pangs, And men have to labor by the toil of their brow is what we read in this chapter. But there was also a curse placed on the serpent. And I want to read here in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14 and verse 15. The Lord God said to the serpent... Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And I can at least look in my own marriage and know that my wife hates snakes. So I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, here we go, and her offspring. "...and he, the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head, the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel." those lines in verse 15, that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, the offspring of the woman. This is in biblical scholarship known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first prophecy of the Messiah that would come. We don't even have to get to the prophet books. We don't even have to get to the New Testament to start hearing about the Messiah who would come in Jesus Christ. We only get three chapters into the Bible. In the midst of the Tragedy of disobedience and rebellion and sin against God in the midst of the consequences that must be rendered out by the just God against disobedience and against sin, in the midst of those circumstances that must have felt extremely terrible and hopeless. Imagine what Adam and Eve must have been processing when they have been walking in the midst of the garden in the goodness of God and they hear God pronounce these curses and tell them, you got to get out of the garden. You can't come back in. Oh, by the way, women, you're going to experience labor pangs. Men, you're going to have to work really hard to get the ground to yield crops for you. This is the consequences of your disobedience, the feelings they must have been processing. And even in the midst of that dark feeling of the consequences of their sin, immediately, That crushing blow death in the garden was soothed with a salve of hope in the first prophecy of the Messiah. That that seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, who would crush the head of the serpent... We fast forward to the New Testament. We see Jesus dying on the cross. That is the serpent striking the heel. Jesus dying on the cross. I guarantee you, Satan was going, ha-ha! I did it! I killed God! I did it. But what he did not know was as he was striking the seed of the woman's heel, That heel would be crushing his head to where Jesus on the cross not only died but conquered sin and death and the grave. And this is the first allusion to the gospel in all of scripture and it's only three chapters in. This is why with this prophecy, the proto-evangelium saying that you, er, you will strike his heel and he will crush your head, is why every single generation throughout the Old Testament was paying such meticulous attention to genealogies and who begat who because every single generation was looking for that seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. And so generation after generation after generation throughout the Old Testament, they're going, could this be the one? Especially when the promise was given to Abraham through the promised seed of Isaac. Abraham's got to be thinking, this is probably the one. Because there were pro- promises given about his seed and his offspring. And every generation is looking for that potential savior. And they even go, David, this dude's got to be it. I mean, he killed the giant. but Then there was that whole Bathsheba thing. Not him, okay? Solomon, wisest dude who's ever lived. How many concubines? Whoa. Dude, I thought you were the wisest dude that ever lived. Like generation after generation after generation, every single one that they're thinking, could this be the promised offspring? Ah, I guess not. Which is why we get to Matthew and it says, Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob. And it traces that line all the way to Jesus. See, prophecies of Jesus' first advent him coming as a baby, are found throughout the Old Testament. Allusions to him come up in microwaves, and many people and events hint at the work he would accomplish. Uh, One scholar, J. Barton Payne, has found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament that somehow point to or describe or reference the coming Messiah, Alfred Edersheim found 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah or His times. So, conservatively, if we want to be conservative and make sure that we're being cautious and that we're not grasping for straws and overreaching, if we want to be cautious and just make sure that we point to things that are only explicitly clear, things that are explicitly true and clear, pointing to the Messiah would come that Jesus fulfilled. Uh, there's at least 300, at least 300 explicit prophecies in the Old Testament that in Jesus' birth and in his life and his ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection, he fulfills at least at the bare minimum 300 prophecies. You want to know the likelihood of someone doing that? Maybe some of you have heard this before, maybe not. The likelihood of someone fulfilling that many prophecies with meticulous detail is like going to the state of Texas, where I moved here from. It's a big place. Everything's bigger in Texas, right? Even the borders. Yeah, huge. I lived in Texas and drove for 12 hours without breaking a border of the state. It's large, okay? It'd be like filling the entire state of Texas knee-deep with silver dollars, taking one silver dollar, taking a Sharpie, marking an X on it, flying over Texas with a helicopter, flipping it out there in the state, and going, hey, someone find that coin. Are the statistical chances that you could fulfill 300 prophecies in your life? So next time you're wrestling with, with your own doubt, And is scripture true? Is God who God said, is Jesus who he said he was? Is he really God or is he just a teacher, just a prophet? Next time you're struggling with those things, just consider the fact that Jesus fulfilled so many prophecies that it would be as easy as going through the state of Texas knee deep in coins trying to find one. How sovereign, how wise, how powerful is our God? very. Let's look at just a few, really quick, a few of these explicit prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his incarnation, his birth. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says this, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old from ancient of days there is a prophecy from Micah the prophet talking about how this ruler this messiah would come out of Bethlehem where Jesus was born Let's look at another one. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. If you went to Matthew chapter 2, you would see Herod talking with the magi, the wise men who are looking for Jesus. And he says to them, hey, where did the prophets say this Messiah would come from? And they quote the Old Testament prophet Isaiah saying, well, they say that he will be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. And so we see these things fulfilled in the New Testament, in Jesus' life. Genesis chapter two, 22 and verse 18 says this. Uh, this is God talking to Abraham, saying, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And we just talked about those genealogies that go from who? Abraham to Jesus. Why is it important? Because the fulfillment of this prophecy is Jesus, the seed or the offspring of Abraham, coming to fulfill that very promise, whereby... Faith in Jesus Christ makes it to where all the nations of the earth can be blessed. We see Paul talking about this in the book of Galatians, talking about how Jesus, the blessing through Abraham that blessed all nations of the earth, is that you can have relationship with God, be reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ, fulfilling Genesis 22, 18. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. The last one we'll look at in this context today. Thus says the Lord, the prophet Jeremiah saying, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Let's flip to Matthew chapter 2 verses 16 and 18 where uh, King Herod orders that all the boys would be killed in the town of Bethlehem trying to take out Jesus. In verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that Jesus fulfills with meticulous detail. Why do these things matter? Because we are able to look back At what God had promised multiple times, multiple ways, and see the ways that he meticulously fulfilled all these hundreds of prophecies so we could today step back and go, wow, he promised it. He did it. There's things that in our life today that he also has promised in the New Testament that are yet to come to pass that we can go, if he promised it back then and he did it back then, then he can, we can stand confident in hope and faith that what he has promised for us today and in the days to come, he will fulfill. We can have hope in our current world that is messed up. Anticipating a day that is better than today. Not solely because our circumstances could improve, but because we will be in a day, in a place glorified in the presence of God where there will be no more sickness. Our family just a few weeks ago laid to rest the body of one of our dear, my wife's cousin, who's 31 years old, passed away from breast cancer. That's terrible that pain, that suffering, now she is in a place where she is not worried about pain and suffering. And we will all be there. That is the hope we all long for. Not, not the pathetic, measly improvement of the things that we have in this life. Listen, hear me well. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for our healing. We absolutely should. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for the circumstances in our lives. We absolutely should. Should we hope for them to be better? Sure. The question is, how much hope do you invest in all of these things? Because I invest hope in the Cowboys about this much. Because they have shown me that my hopes can be disappointed by them. How much hope do we place in our circumstances being better? If we look at the Apostle Paul, and had he placed his hope and his circumstances getting better, he would have significantly hindered his ministry. If he was solely bent on, man, prison sucks. I need to get out of here. God, I need you to get me out of these circumstances. He would have been out of those circumstances and missed opportunity to be fruitful and effective in what God had him in there for. We see from Scripture, God can rattle the doors open whenever he wants. God is all powerful. We've seen Jesus heal the leper. We've seen Jesus raise the dead. God can do anything he wants. But there was multiple times in Scripture that he didn't do exactly what everybody was hoping and longing for. We can see where Paul wrote to the Corinthians this laundry list of suffering that he went through, where he said, "I've been stoned this many times, beaten with rods this many times, whipped this many times, shipwrecked this many times, hungry, cold, going through all this suffering." And if his minister, or if, if his ultimate hope was in God fixing and improving his circumstances, well, his joy would have been robbed. His hopes often would have been dashed. He probably wouldn't have been able to say things like, man, I count, you know, all this stuff is rubbish next to knowing Jesus Christ. He wouldn't have been able to say, like he told the church of Philippi when he said, you know what, guys, I've learned to be content in whatever state I'm in. Where he said, man, all I care about is gaining Christ. I'm paraphrasing there from Philippians chapter 3. But he said, I've learned to be poor and I've learned to be rich. I've learned to be content in whatever state I am, ultimately because he has Christ and the hope that he's pressing on towards the upward calling of God in Christ, whereby all of our hopes that sickness would not be a thing we have to deal with anymore and strife and and frustrations between humanity all the things that we see and experience and feel in this life, in this world, that we should work towards improving, that we should work, do our part, that we should pray and ask God to work on, but they're not where we should place our ultimate hope. See, the coming of Christ, the incarnate God, Jesus, was the advent of long-awaited, eagerly hoped-for Messiah. The Savior, not only of Israel, but of all of mankind. Those who were weary, suffering, looking for thousands of years for these promises to be fulfilled. Thousands of years. People who knew that there were entire generations in the past who had promises that they received from their ancestors. Jacob passed their, uh, Abraham passed those promises on and passed those promises on and passed them on. They had been receiving these promises from their ancestors for generations. They lived their entire lives in wait for the fulfillment of those promises. They would have known about the 400 years of Egyptian slavery. Let's think about that for a moment. How many generations would have lived and died waiting? and praying, and longing, and hoping for their deliverance, imagining a better day, knowing that God had promised that they would be delivered from that Egyptian captivity. Finally, 400 years later, they are set free from that. So when Jesus finally arrives as the baby, born of the Virgin, which fulfilled the prophecy in Isaiah 7, in the town of Bethlehem, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah chapter 5, and so many others, that that ramping up of hope and its possible fulfillment would have been overwhelming. We are not talking about, I hope our team goes all the way this year. We're not talking about, I hope my spouse takes those hints that I've been dropping and gets me that present that I've been hoping for, even though they've given me every indication that they're not good at reading between the lines and taking those hints. We're not talking about even hope for that raise, that promotion, that job, that that, uh, that vacation, that, that hope for our circumstances to change, our hope for our health, our hope for whatever it might be. We're talking about thousands of years of built-up, compounding hope of a people who had a promise that there would be a seed of the woman that would come to crush sin and death, thousands of years longing for, looking for, hoping for, eagerly waiting for a messiah to reconcile the sin in the garden and Jesus shows up this long 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 awaited messiah and people start going could this really be him could could he finally be here like the deepest hope you could ever have in your life. These people have been holding on to promises from their grandparents and grandparents and grandparents and grandparents and grandparents, and and they're going, we heard of a babe born in Bethlehem of a virgin. Could this be the one? And the shepherds come, and the magi come, and the angels, the host of heaven sings. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill to men, the prophecy fulfilled of he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Could this really be him? See, rightly placed hope sustains us as we wait. I think about if if Paul, again, had his hope banking on getting out of jail, or not going through all of that suffering, not ultimately being martyred, well, his hope would have disappointed. But rightly placed hope sustains us as we wait. That's why he said in Philippians chapter 4, I'm forgetting those things which lie behind, and I'm pressing on towards the goal, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. My hope is not here and now in my circumstances. My hope is in eternity with Christ. Again, yes, we pray about what's going on in our lives, but, but <laughs> like the cowboys, we're careful about how much hope we put in those things, ultimately trusting God. We pray, we lay them before him and go, my hope, I know, I know my hope will be answered in eternity with Christ. I know from Scripture and from seeing what God has promised and what God has fulfilled, that He has promised and will fulfill that there will be a day where I feel no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. That day will come. And here and now, I hold on to my hope for that day. And Hebrews 11.1 tells us, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for It is the evidence of things not seen, meaning this is what we hold on to our faith as we look forward to what we're hoping for. I'm holding on to this by faith, knowing that it's coming and it might not be here yet, but I'm holding on to it. This is the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, where it goes through all these Old Testament patriarchs who obeyed and acted out of faith That it talks about even Moses, who didn't necessarily know about Jesus, but it says that unto Jesus he was doing the things that he was doing in faith. Generation after generation after generation was in faith looking for that Messiah, even though generation after generation after generation lived and died without seeing him. It's not wrong to hope for our circumstances to improve and for our suffering to be alleviated, but we need to consider how much hope is to be rightly invested in what. Ultimately, the power of hope lies in the hope bearer's ability to fulfill what we're hoping for. I know that's kind of cumbersome sentence, so I'm going to say it one more time. Ultimately, the power of hope Lies in our hope bearers' ability, in Jesus' ability, in God's ability to fulfill what we are hoping for. We know God can do anything. We have seen in Scripture that He has made promises and already fulfilled most of them. And there are many promises that He has made that we see that some are being fulfilled right now. And there are some that will yet be fulfilled. See, when you place your what you place your hope in is directly related to your joy. I'm not talking about your happiness, which is so fickle. Like, how easy is it for us to have something good happen and we get happy, and then something bad happens 30 minutes later and our happiness is gone. Because our happiness is so petty, so shallow, and so fickle. Our joy is in what is above our circumstances, our hope eternally in Christ. Tim Keller, really quickly, I'll just nutshell this because I'm running out of time, but Tim Keller one time talked about how we all have different idols. Your, Your team can be an idol. Your children can be an idol. Your career can be an idol. Your possessions can be an idol. Money, relationships, all these things can be idols. But he makes the point or makes the case that all these surface idols trickle down to four source idols. They all come from these four things. One is the idol of our comfort, where we place our hope and our joy in our comfort. We want to be comfortable. There's nothing, like, I like being comfortable. That's why I don't have the cool faux hawk with the mullet that I used to have, because I care a heck of a lot more about being comfortable than I do about being fashionable now. I guess that's part of growing up. (laughs) And so we care about comfort. And when our comfort is, is poked or rustled or taken from us, Is our joy taken from us? Because if so, then that exposes that that might be an idol in which we've placed our hope. And the second one was our approval of others. Approval of others is something that we place our hope in. We need to know other people want us, like us, accept us, approve of us. And friends, listen, Jesus Christ has made you approved before God. And so we, we, we look for such, such petty answers to these desires, looking for fallen creatures to give us the approval that is given to us by God in Christ Jesus. And when we look for that in others, whether that is a spouse or our kids or our friends or our bosses or whomever it might be, we have made an idol where when we don't get that from others, Our joy is robbed. The third thing that he points out as a source idol is our desire for control. We want to control outcomes. We want to control everything that's going on in our lives. And when we can't, like holy smokes, last year people could not control their lives, right? Everything that was going on all throughout the world and still we're navigating some of that today. People's idols of control were cast down. And so again, when we cannot control the outcomes in our lives, does it rob our joy? If so, that might be an idol. Fourthly, power. That people want power, they want the ability to rule and do and make things happen. Those are the four things that we long for, that when they are threatened, if our joy is threatened, And it exposes that these things are an idol in our hearts and what we need to evaluate is why are we placing our hope in these petty earthly things when for comfort we have the Holy Spirit of God we have the promise of what is to come. When for approval, we have been accepted and adopted into the family of God, having our sins forgiven and washed away, as we sang earlier, I am washed by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ, has washed away the offense that was between us and God, whereby he says, come to me, my child. That hunger for control, we get to cast our lives before the God who is sovereign over all things, the only one who actually can control all things, who is also a good, loving, and faithful Father. And so the things that we're concerned about, that we want to go certain ways, we get to go, you know what, Father? I'm gonna take my hands off, and I'm gonna trust you. And if this doesn't look the way I want it to, I know you're good. I know you're faithful. I know you love me because you've proven that. And I'm going to trust you with this thing that I'm going through. And with power, we get to again go, you know what? All power is yours. All authority is yours. Lord, I lay that down. Use me for your purposes. Because misplaced hope sets us up for disillusionment. And what can happen is we can be just like the people who were there in the advent of Jesus. The first coming of Jesus. There were people who didn't see him for who he was. There were people who were opposed to him and rejected him. Why? Well, because he did not fulfill their hopes and their expectations of what they thought the Messiah was going to be and do for them. They were expecting the Messiah to come as this conquesting military government leader to overthrow the Roman Empire and establish the politics and the government of Israel and make Israel again the supreme superpower in the area, the legitimized people of God, whereby these people could have their power and their control and their acceptance and their comfort. And because they were looking for those things in that Messiah the clear Messiah who is fulfilling meticulous prophecy after another prophecy after another prophecy went right over their heads. And if we're not careful, we will look for God to meet our expectations than to looking at what his word has declared. And if we do that, We, like the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders of the day, will miss Jesus for who he is because we feel disappointed and that he's not meeting our expectations. The advent of hope is about making sure that we don't put our hope in the petty, trivial, meaningless, and time-sensitive things of this life and this world, but we take all of it and cast it upon the rock of ages, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, who has fulfilled, fulfilled prophecy and will again fulfill prophecy and we can confidently know he's got it and my hope is in him when I'm suffering and when I'm doing well in the bad days and in the good days my hope is not shaken because it is placed on Christ and that cannot be taken from me I want to read one last verse, super quick. First Peter, chapter one, and verse th- thirteen, says this: "Therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ." This is a verse that is talking about the second advent, the second coming of Christ. That because we are looking forward to that day now in hope. We prepare our minds for action now. This is not something where we just go, that day's coming, so whenever it comes, I guess for now I'll just twiddle my thumbs and do whatever. No, we prepare for action now. Being sober-minded, setting our hope on that day for when, like the shepherds, like the wise men who are going, we're hearing he's here. We get to do work now preparing the way For when we will get to say, he's coming. We say that now. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Even so, come quickly. Why? Because there's better. And I can imagine it. And I can hope for it and long for it. And I hope you can too. Lord, I ask today that your word and your spirit would pierce our hearts to help us long for and hunger for and yearn for that day. That we would not place our hope in the trivial, temporal, fleeting pleasures and comforts of this world, of the approval of man, of control and for power, but we would place all of our hope in knowing you, being filled with your spirit now and looking forward to that day where we will yet see you face to face. God, I ask that you would give us that patient endurance now that your, <laughs> your family had for generations after generations, whether it's our generation or one that is yet to come, that we would be like those who continue to faithfully look forward to what you have declared and promised, which causes us to be faithful in the day that we live. In Jesus' name, amen.